0: Welcome to Water for Fighting, where we discuss the past, present, and future of water in Florida with the people who make it happen. I'm your host, Brett Cyphers. This week's discussion is brought to you by Sea and Shoreline and Resource Environmental Solutions. Sea and Shoreline is the Southeast leading innovator in protecting coastal communities from devastating storms and restoring ecosystems that once faced ecological collapse. Visit their website at www.seanshoreline.com. And of course, RES. Rez is the nation's leader in ecological restoration, helping to restore Florida's natural resources with water quality and stormwater solutions that offer communities guaranteed performance and outcomes. Check them out at www.res.us. All right, folks, strap in for this one. Grab that glass of whiskey or Cafe Cubano or sweet tea if that's your poison, because this one's going to be good. I'm sitting with Tampa and Florida legend Governor Bob Martinez. His achievements in public service positions would take me a week to cover, truly. But let me just start with a few. He served as Florida's 40th governor and the first one of Spanish descent. He was Tampa's 54th mayor, the nation's drug czar, the vice chairman of the Southwest Florida Water Management District, and my personal favorite, because I grew up there, the chairman of the Hillsborough River Basin Board. He's also been a classroom teacher, as well as the executive director of the Classroom Teachers Association, a teacher at his alma mater, the University of Tampa, as well as the University of South Florida. Oh, and did I mention he was the owner of the Cafe Sevilla, which is a Spanish restaurant in West Tampa. There's so much more, including his current role as senior policy advisor as Holland and Knight law firm, but let's just go ahead and hear from the man himself. Governor Martinez, it's such an honor to be with you today. Welcome.
1: Well, thank you, Brett. It's uh, good to be with you and kind of reminisce a little bit about what's happened in my past.
0: I'm glad you, I glad you agreed to do it. There's so much I want to talk about and so many questions, but I want to start with a real hard-hitting one. Most of the partners at my firm, it's Anfield Consulting, are of Cuban and Spanish descent. They're also from Miami, which is unfortunate. So my question to you is, in the world of sandwiches, Tampa Cuban or Miami Cuban?
1: Without down doubt, to Tampa, Cuban, we crushed our bread with palmetto. Yes, sir. That makes it a little bit different, a little bit better crust, quite frankly. It's not as mushy as the uh, Cuban bread in Miami.
0: I agree. I agree. And since we're on the subject of food, and you heard it from the, the man, folks. So uh, since we're on the subject of food, can you talk a little bit about Cafe Sevilla? I found an old menu online, and I think it's the right one, and the food choices especially the seafood, looks phenomenal.
1: Yeah. it. it uh, my uncle uh, founded the restaurant. Uh, I went from uh, teaching to labor relations. I represented management for a number of years during the labor negotiations with the unions. And then the um, health classroom teachers association hired me to log in to negotiate on their behalf. And after about nine years of that, I sort of got tired of it and I was over at the Cafe Sevilla having dinner with my wife, and my uncle comes over and sits down and says, uh, Bobby, I'm going to sell a restaurant. I'm going to retire. We talked about that a little bit, but I didn't indicate that I was interested in buying it at that time. Hmm. So we left, and it was a Friday, and my memory serves me right. And that weekend, my wife, Mary Jane, and I talked about it. As, you know, I'm tired of what I'm doing Though I've never worked in a restaurant. My family were either in the restaurant business or in the dairy business. Two mm-hmm. long-hour kind of, of businesses. I, I don't know. I feel like I'd like to take a shot at it and, and see if, in fact, I can make it work. So we both agreed to do that. So I called my uncle and I said, I want to sit down and talk to you about buying the restaurant. So we did, you know, put up our house for equity, our wow. residential house which means you had to succeed or you lost your house. Wow. And it was about that time, about maybe a month after I had bought the restaurant, and I was still with a really steep learning curve about buying and um, the, understanding the operations of the restaurant and so forth when Governor Reuben Ashford calls me in the middle of a lunch period. And I go to the phone, and uh, he says, I want to point you to the Southwest Water Management District. So I said, Ruben, I just bought a restaurant <laughs> for my uncle. Um, i trying to hold his customers and bring younger people in as customers and mm. learning to buy and all the rest of the, of the business. And uh, I you know, I don't think I can do Swift Mud. I said, I don't what Swift. I mean, I know of Swift Mud, but mm. I've never followed it. So I really you know, haven't done anything with that. He said, well, that's exactly what I want. There was a water war going on in Tampa at that time. The Pasco Hillsborough and Pinellas Pasco and Hillsborough, the city mm-hmm. of Tampa and Newport Rich, was always in Pinellas County because our well fields were in our counties. And there was a drought going on, so late levels were going down. All the rest that goes with that, and, mm-hmm. and he said, and there were tons of people that wanted the two vacancies that existed, one in Hillsborough, one in Pinellas. And he didn't want any of them because they all had an extra grind he felt. And therefore, he wanted somebody on the board that didn't really have any, you know, that didn't have any skin in the game. did you know, other than opening faucets, that was my whole use of water. Right. <laughs> and that's what he wanted. And he knew our new government because I had lobbied him for the teachers for years, and I had been involved in his campaign, and so we knew each other quite well. It, 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 here's a funny thing He tells me, they only meet once a month." I said, "Well, that's in Brooksville." I said, yeah, but it's not that far from Tampa. So I found out I agreed. Well, it mm-hmm. turned out they did meet once a month. It was for two days. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I didn't know they had basins. So there were three basins for the Hillsborough County governor, what these call them governors, on the Swift Mud mm-hmm. board. And they were separate boards. So she chaired three other boards. <laughs> So it wasn't a one-day thing. It would turn out to be like five days without right. all the phone calls and everything else. And I'm, I, I, you know, at the end of the day, obviously, I was honored that he asked me to do that. Probably was my stepping stone into the public side hmm. in terms of, a, of a holding an elected office. And it was a, a period of, of great uh, change. Hmm. We went into permitting for the first time, water permits. I became a hearing officer for all the lakes in Hillsborough County had at night. Hmm. We had to go out and hold hearings. Nobody would show up, but you still had to hold the hearings. And uh, somebody did show up, then your water experts, all they used was all of these technical languages, which I'm sure they didn't understand to any great degree, because I, in some cases I didn't either. So we had to do that for all the lakes in Hillsboro, because we had three basin boards, the Hillsboro, the uh, Northwest, and the Alify. And they each have separate board members. So uh, it, was, it was a real learning experience, quite frankly.
0: You had the Water Resources Act that got passed just, I think, two years before you got on the board. Was that the, the catalyst for you being so busy when you got to the board and th- those basin boards?
1: Well, it, it started because of the drought. Right. And the lake levels had been drawn down because of heavy pumping from mm. Pinellas and St. Petersburg at that time. And there was no real way to, you know, to stop it other than not to issue any more permits for well fields. So eventually rains came and all that, and we went on to do other things, including then a systemic way of municipalities going about getting permits. Mm -hmm. At first, we exempted the the agricultural community from having to get permits, and then the first ones to really be required were the miners, the phosphate miners, so really the first ones that got required to to seek consumption consumption use permits, Mm -hmm. followed by uh, municipalities, and then Finally, I got uh, to agriculture after it was off the board. We bought a lot of land. And back then, the amount of money you could draw from your well was tied to the acres that uh, you controlled. Hmm. Swift Mudd had bought um, the Green Swamp, among other areas, right. and which is a great a great area, a good recharge area. As a result of my having been experienced with labor relations, I was also then chairing the committee on the human resources, for swift mud besides the other stuff Hmm. so it was was great it was a great learning experience you meet a lot of people and i always enjoyed that i grew up in in just barely inside the city of tampa in a very sparsely populated area about three blocks from the hillsborough river which was totally undeveloped so all you had was massive growths of one kind Hmm. or another a couple of our wetlands bike distance include my bike these wetlands in fact i learned this from one of the wetlands a lot of wildlife. My family was avid fishermen, so I fished every week and at least once, most times, both Saturday and Sunday. Hmm. I had a real great outdoor growing up period.
0: I was going to get to that because I wanted to, to wind back to not just your childhood, but even to your parents because they moved to, you were born, like you are Tampa through and through, and I want to hear about how your family made its way to Florida to begin with, you know, including how your parents met, and what were they like?
1: It's my grandparents that came from Spain. Mm. My parents were born in Tampa. Okay. So my grandparents were from Asturias, mainly, one from Galicia. These are provinces mm. of the northern part of the country. And they came between 1908 and 1914, I believe. And uh, one set of parents, grandparents actually married in Tampa. At that time, the cigar industry was growing and flourishing, and most of the factories were owned by Spaniards, and they brought in workers from Spain, Cuba, Italy, and Germany. Two cities were created. Besides Tampa, Ibor City was a city, a municipality on its own right,
2: hmm.
1: as was West Tampa on its own right. It was a very uh, urban environment back in those early days of the uh, 20th century. Mm-hmm. It was multicultural, also a pretty good-sized Jewish community mixed in with that other community made up of Italians and Spaniards and Cubans and, mm-hmm. and a small colony of Germans. And all all that happened because of cigar factories. <laughs> and, of course, cigar factories require cigar boxes, so there were cigar manufacturing for boxes. So the whole city basically revolved about the huge cigar industry, which at one time, I'm told, employed almost 50,000 people. Wow. Because everything was done by hand. There was no machines back then, so it was all hand-done, so it was labor-intensive. it's so my grandparents are the ones that came at an early age, and then they, my parents were already born here in Tampa.
0: How did your parents meet?
1: They're both from West Tampa. My mother, where I ended up living, was on the, the, the north end of the city of tampa the northwest end mm-hmm. and my father probably grew up on i would say one and a half miles south of that point and uh they probably met in um junior high hmm. as it was called back then
0: sure well which part of of tampa would that be where, where you grew up northwest uh, tampa which which street
1: ivy street okay An interesting thing, and this may be more in-depth than you want, but between an a main street called Columbus Drive Mm -hmm. and a main street called Tampa Bay Boulevard, there were a number of streets, of which one of them is Ivy, which was a dirt road, and the streetcar ran in front of our house. And each of those streets were named for Mr. Drew, who uh, was the original Drew Fields person. So Cordelia, Abdella, Douglas, Braddock, Kathleen, Eileen, and Ivy were all his children. <laughs> back then, most of the people that settled in that area were Spaniards, or Spaniards descent like my grandparents. He was also a builder, so he would um, build houses, and the Spaniards, like my grandfather, uh, every week put in money like into some pot or jar whatever they used. And whenever they got to $100 for a down payment, then they had a lottery, and the name was pulled out, and whoever's name out pulled out, I got the $100 to get the down payment. Hmm. And my grandfather's name got drawn at one point, so he had the $100 to get the house that I lived in as a kid. Wow. And it's still there.
0: That's great. That's great. No, and that's that is definitely not too much detail. That's exactly what I was hoping to to hear about. You know, I grew up east of there, but if you wanted, you know, decent food, if you want to go to, to interesting places, you had to go west, obviously, of, of the Sefner, Brandon, Dover area. And so no, that is that is fantastic. Uh did you play sports? Did you like school?
1: Yeah. I um I played organized ball from age twelve to twenty two, played two sports. Uh, basketball and baseball and I played semi-pro baseball so I played till I was 22 for Jefferson High School
2: hmm.
1: and American Legion post-248 and the semi-pro league was the social league and then I also played post-high school basketball in a league called Municipal League where high school graduates and college graduates continue to play ball hmm. and you had sponsors different companies would sponsor the teams so uh, I did that until uh, I got out of college, and then my wife said, that's enough, I don't want to be tired on weekends <laughs> <laughs> going to sit on bleachers. <laughs> so uh, so I stopped at age 22 and didn't play again. I hear you. I still have one record in the high school, Thomas Jefferson High School in baseball. Really? Uh, one game I had seven RBIs. Holy cow! And it, and it remains the record at Jefferson High School. I had a grand slam home run and a triple with the bases loaded. Wow! And I enjoy sports, you know. It, it, sure. Um, you know, we try to keep track of what's left of us. Mm-hmm. And about eight months, we, yeah, about eight months ago, we rounded up the ones that I, I knew were mobile, could drive, whatever it was, and treat them all to lunch. Well, we all exaggerated about how good we were, <laughs> and. Uh, and we had a good time, so I'll, I'll probably do that again in a few more months. And I think there's only six of us wow. that we know of. There, there could be others we just don't know about, it, but of uh, the ones that we know, sure. there's only six of us left.
0: Even at six seems you know fairly decent to be able to keep in touch with anyway.
1: Yeah, How- no, it's, it's fine. I, I take, uh, they're all retired, obviously, and so I usually, two or three of them I take out for lunch every once in a while, just one-on-one, on one, mm-hmm. you know, so you have a good conversation. These the are guys that you spent a lot of time with and had a lot of fun with. Of course. Watching it, we're still alive and can go out and enjoy a day.
0: Mm -hmm. Let's take a minute to talk about my friends at Sea & Shoreline. Since its inception in 2014, Sea & Shoreline's unmatched experience with scientifically validated methods of aquatic restoration has proven successful across more than 150 environmental projects. The company continues to be the industry leader in rehabilitating threatened and corrupted aquatic environments with proven success in places such as Crystal River, Homosassa River, the Caloosahatchee River, and the Indian River Lagoon. I've seen firsthand how sea and shoreline completely reset the ecosystem in Crystal River, transforming from a mucky, algae-dominated system to one with plants that actually belong there. The water used to be full of lingbia and hydrilla, with a thick bottom layer of muck that smelled like rotten eggs. But with Sea and Shoreline's comprehensive muck removal and planting of native eel grasses, the system is now beautiful, crystal clear with lush eelgrass meadows. The manatees are feasting, fish have returned, ecotourism is booming, and property values have significantly increased. Sea and Shoreline is committed to restoring and preserving Florida's communities and aquatic ecosystems because they're Floridians. And these are their communities too. To find out how you can partner with Sea and Shoreline to help your community, Visit them at www.cnshoreline.com. You'll be glad you did. All right, back to the conversation. Well, let me talk about school a little bit more, Jefferson High, and even and even before that. Did you enjoy the academic part of school?
1: Yeah, I went to Tampa Bay Boulevard Elementary, which was a county school at that time. Tampa Bay Boulevard is a northwest street, and there was a divided line between city and county. Hmm. And I lived four blocks inside the city, and the school was on the other side, of the north of Tampa Bay Boulevard, which made it in the county. Hmm. Only about 90 kids went there. It was very sparsely populated, and to get 90 kids, you, you went all, all the way to to Osmar, you wow. know, to get the kids. Yeah, you know, I always mm-hmm. enjoyed it, and um, I hardly ever missed the day. Tampa Bay Boulevard. I was during the Second World War. You know, you had a lot of collection of tin and. Uh-huh. papers and rubber bands and you are in every Friday and you bought savings bonds, war bonds and all that kind of stuff. Beginning of the 4th grade, I was selected to be a patrol, safety patrol with AAA sponsors. By the time I was in 6th grade, I was the captain. Uh, back in those days, AAA and the city police department of a city would sponsor the elementary one kid from each elementary school inside the city to a trip to Washington, D.C., to observe Memorial Day. In wow. 47, I got chosen. <laughs> one, the one from Tampa Bay Boulevard to go to Washington, D.C. Wow. We were there like I forgot, three or four days, but you know, we did did it all, the monuments. And back in those days, there was no security. We went in and out of buildings like nothing. <laughs> even in the White House, we walked in like nothing and, and wow. out again. And then we participated in the parade itself. We were, and the Tampa kids were March behind dwight d eisenhower who had just returned from europe wow and uh, he was in a convertible in front of us and uh one pennsylvania in front of the white house and there's uh, president truman sitting in the review stand so at age 12 i got to see to you know president a president or a person who later became president sure so it's quite an experience for a 12-year-old absolutely and uh, then ended up going to high school with a few other That went on that same trip. I I got great pictures of that too.
0: Wow, that sounds cool.
1: So that was my experience with um, politics. My first first experience, (laughs) but it was pretty big time—White House and president of the United States.
0: Absolutely, two of them even. And and I I guess that maybe that leads to a question of: What did you want to be when you grew up? Did you want? You ended up as a as a teacher out of college, like at, at first, but. Did you ever think about politics or being president of the United States when you were a kid?
1: Not really, but you know, when you look back, you start realizing some of the things you did. For instance, you know, I was a class officer. Mm-hmm. I was elected, uh, dra- uh, at, back then May Day, uh, May Day was a big thing before the communists took it over. Then May Day disappeared. Hmm. But May Day, all the, all the schools had the May Day ribbons around the po- pole, May dancing. Mm-hmm. And uh, they elected the king and queen. So at, at Tampa Bay Boulevard, I was nominated as a candidate for the first grade huh. with Boston, Montana, in the first grade. Wow. And we won in huh. the sixth grade. Every kid knew each other. It we was such a small school. didn't matter grade you went. You knew everybody. Everybody knew you. So as first graders, we ended up being king and queen of Tampa Bay Boulevard. <laughs> and then, we, and then it, I got it again while I was in the fifth grade. And then I was in, in high school and then homecoming they had something called Dragon Court King mm-hmm. and Queen. And I got elected there. So three times, I guess you say it's politics, right? right. So yes. three times I got elected for, the, for the, the highest crown they had at that point. And then when I got out of college, you know, I joined the Optimist Club and said, tell them club. So basically I was sort of a joiner. Mm-hmm. And active in the you know, Chamber of Commerce and things of that sort, and then of course the years that I was with the teachers union, it was all government—state mm-hmm. government, federal government, school boards. When y'all look back, obviously I did a lot of things that probably would have led that led to me running for mayor of Tampa.
0: Mm-hmm. Let's go then to college because when you went to the University of Tampa, and it was a relatively young school at that point, right?
1: Right, and very small. There, I didn't participate, and I'll tell you why. I, uh, I started going steady with my wife mm-hmm. with, with my wife to be Mary Jane Marino. Mm-hmm. And in uh, high school, uh, you and know, back family used to teach you alphabetically. Right. And in homeroom, I sat behind her <laughs> for three years. So uh, we started dating in our senior year. We started talking about, you know, getting married. Back then, a lot of us got married young. Mm-hmm. And I talked about marriage, so I went and got a job while going to school. Although my parents paid for my college expenses, since we wanted to get married, we needed to have some cash, and she went to and got a job before going to college so we could afford to get married, Hmm. which is how we did it. Then when I got out of the University of Tampa, then she started with her education at USF and finished. Hmm. So we sort of took turns to get where we are. But at the university level, I was asked to go go out for basketball and baseball, but to do that, I couldn't work. Mary Jane was more important to me than the sports, so I didn't play. I played uh, semi-pro baseball during that period of time Mm -hmm. uh, because I used to play Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. So it only interfered with one day of work, which would have been the Friday day whenever we had a Friday game. Uh, So as a result, uh, I was not active at the university level Mm. because of my other priority.
0: Sure. It's still a pretty bold move getting married in the middle of college, and so I, I definitely I get the choice, that's for sure. What did you study in college, what did, what did, and, and what did she study?
1: I studied social science and, and got the courses to teach it as well, but my major in this, within social science was economics, and some courses were in labor, and I had a professor by the name of Dr. Eric Axelrod. Hmm. Before the U.S. got into the war, he had... Blown Spitfires for the United Kingdom against the Nazis. Wow. Very interesting guy. in fact, we ended up socializing because he wasn't married. So we became close friends and he kept harping on me that I need to go back to school and get into the field of labor and industrial relations. Hmm. So I graduated. That stuck in my mind. So in 1960, I decided I'm going back to school. Hmm. I had a three year old daughter. Uh, boy that had just been born, decided to go to the University of Illinois, A wow. College of Labor and Industrial Relations. And if I had done that, I believe the rest would not have followed, quite frankly. Hmm. We sacrificed. It was cold as all get out. <laughs> we didn't ha- we didn't have uh, a lot of money. We lived a very modest amount of money.
2: Mm-hmm. And,
1: but it worked. We got through. I got the degree. And I uh, got me into labor relations where I first represented management and then the teachers hired me. Mm-hmm one of those things that, um, it's one of your war stories. It's one that probably, who knows, if, if that Eric Axelrod had not convinced me that's what I should do, I might not have done it. And who else, you know, what else might have happened? Who knows? That's sort of how I got into that whole field and how I really got into dealing with government because I ended up then going with the teachers. Mm-hmm. And that's all I did. That was government.
0: Yeah, I want to ask, like, how much literal politics was involved in being— the executive director of that organization.
1: Well, obviously, when you're dealing with grievances and all that, it would be like any, whether well, it's public or private, but quite frankly, you know, you have an elected, publicly elected body that has a final say so on contracts and salaries and all that. So it's also part of the political process. Mm-hmm. It's got a little bit of private process, but a lot of it's public. And then the money comes from three directions school board taxes, state money, and federal money kind of a complex thing. It was a great learning experience. That's how I met, you know, Claude Kirk, and mm-hmm. Ruben Ashford, and Neloy Collins, and Bob Graham all before my time, and dealt with all of them at one point or another. As I said, it was one of the steps that you take to move forward. Uh, so that's why I'm saying, mm-hmm. although I didn't start in life wanting to be mayor of Tampa, or governor, or anything like that, when I look at my past, and how I, I engaged in organizations and with organizations, it clearly was laying the path for it and not realizing it.
0: Can you point to a specific trigger in a moment, or was it over time where you gradually decided that you wanted to be mayor of Tampa?
1: Well, I, I can point, point it. When I owned the restaurant, friend and personal attorney and business attorney was a gentleman by the name of Clint Brown. And on Fridays, my wife, she was a head and media specialist at King High School in Hillsborough County, uh, but my uncle had been unionized, so we, we had ops out all the work rules. Uh, our uh, cashier was off on Fridays. Mm-hmm. So my wife, after school, would come to do the night shift. The cashier, uh, we had several cashier, the one that was doing the night shift. So she would come there, and then the Clint Brown, as I said, my attorney, he and his wife would come and have a late dinner where there was not much traffic uh, coming in, most traffic was going out. Mm-hmm. And we would have a late dinner with him. So sometime in seventy eight, he says, You know, you need to run for mayor. I said, No, I don't think so. I just finished paying off this place and a lot to park my cars. Now the money should be mine instead of the banks and my uncles. And he kept that and kept that and you know, Mayor Jane sitting there because we having dinner together. And finally, uh towards uh, the end of 1970, 19- Seventy. Well, not the end, but probably uh, at the end of summer of seventy-eight, or maybe the beginning of fall of seventy-eight. Mm-hmm. I said, "All right, I'll, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'm going to put a, a test run on my running for mayor." So I called the uh, Tribune reporter who covered water management, uh, Howard Gorm, to come by for lunch that I wanted to talk to him,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and uh, come uh, come around one-third near the end of lunch, I could sit down with him. So he did. So he thought I was going to talk about water, which I did. I started a conversation <laughs> about Swift Mud and all that. So, somewhere along the way, and he had his spindle pad out, but wasn't writing anything down. And I said, You know, I've had someone mention the other day, why don't I run for mayor? So he immediately stops eating, gets a spindle pad. So, are you running for mayor? I said, No, I didn't say I was running for mayor. <laughs> I said, Somebody asked if I ever thought about running for mayor. So, well, what did you say? And I said, well, I I'd I I'd never really thought about it. It would be a great position. It's You know, it's a great city, and mm-hmm. it's a great office. It's got a strong mayor system, so you're the CEO of the city. and So I'm, I have you know, kind of built up the position quite a bit. So I said, well, if, if people asked you to do it, would you do it? I said, well, I don't know. This just came up for the first time. Well, the next morning, there's this huge story about my run, maybe running for mayor, you know, <laughs> front page. The Tampa Times, lot even interviewing me, had like, Second World War headlines. And shortly after comes an editorial about that I was thinking about doing it. Mm-hmm. So, all of a sudden, now I've got people coming to the restaurant. Some said, please don't do it because we're already supporting somebody else, blah, 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 kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So that's how basically how it started. So, about two or three months later, maybe it was around December, uh, finally uh, my wife and I we said, you know what, let's go ahead and do it. So we had the dinner, and I surprised Clint Brown and his wife. Says, uh, Clint, don't bring up the subject again. I'm going to do it. <laughs> so then we waited a, you know, a few months before we were doing anything about it because the election was in 79,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and this was late 78. So I forgot exactly when in 79 I went public. Uh, to say that I would be a candidate. So that's sort of how it happened. No polling, no committee, no anything. Mm-hmm. Just four people talking in a booth. Wow. Whether to run for mayor or not. And running for governor was about the same thing.
0: Really? How Well, let me ask you this. How close was the, the race when you won?
1: I, I won without a runoff against the four opponents.
0: Okay. Let's talk about you as mayor. You built the Tampa Bay Performing Arts Center, which is still there and still one of those jewels of Tampa. You made space for a convention center. You restored the historic city hall. That's just a few things, all while reducing the property tax rate by well over 50%. But I mean, that's all incredible. But I want to focus a little bit more on the environmental side of things because there are some innovative things in there as well. And first I want to talk about the Lowry Park Zoo. Because when I was a young kid, there were always the field trips to the zoo, and I remember it as a pretty awful place, actually. It was sad, run down, and by the time my youngest daughter was in elementary school, I was buying annual passes every year for the zoo because it had become a world-class facility. Can you talk about how that came about?
1: Like you, you know, I remember taking my kids there in fact, one of the times I still I don't have a picture of the trip. you know how they had these roving reporters looking for interested uh, uh, photographs to run? Back when the papers had a lot of pages,
2: mm-hmm.
1: right? And I had my daughter there because my wife was over at USF studying that day, and I'm there, I took her there. And they got a picture of her coming down the slide because it had become like an amusement park, frankly, mm. it, it had gotten to be a pretty rough place. I got elected mayor. And the zoo, as you described it, uh, is what we had. I get a letter from the uh, accreditation, zoo accreditation. I forgot the technical name for it, mm-hmm. this uh, association. That the zoo had been decertified as a result of poor management of animals. And mm-hmm. no doubt there were. There were small cages so that were hard to walk around. That's right. So it happened that a couple of days from the day I got the letter, a zoo support group was having their annual little thing over at the Jim Walters' golf course. Mm-hmm. I'm driving and I'm thinking about the zoo, what the heck to do with it, because I got an opposite of bad publicity. The night that they were having that function at the Jim Walters, the name of the place was Safari, the clubhouse. Mm-hmm. Where the word that you make the turn on the nine holes. And I made a couple of appearances before going there. but And I, I never had a driver when I was there. I did my own driving. And I didn't have any staff with me at that time. and had not talked to the staff about what I was going to do with the zoo. I was still thinking about it. So I show up there, and they get me up on the stage to talk about the zoo. And, you know, we talked about what happened. We be, had been disaccredited, and the question what I was, what are going to do now? So they're all oohing and on up at the zoo and all that. But I'll tell you what we're going to do. We're going to zero it down. We're going to knock it down completely and start all over again. And they couldn't believe it. my staff was there. They never even heard this. Wow! So their minds would say, how are we going to pay for it? That was the first thing that comes to your mind. <laughs> so, of course, there was no media there. So they're all hooping and hollering about, you know, a new zoo coming and all that. So, anyhow, left there and said, well, I'm going to need to call a news conference pretty quick because this is going to get out what I said. I said, bring me Abigail. Abigail was a, a chimpanzee the zoo had, huh. very friendly and outgoing and. So I, I bring her in for the news conference. So uh, they brought Adnickel in me and I am mean, I'm, I'm, got preach to preacher, my holding her, and I announced what we're going to do—that we're going to level the zoo and start all over again. Wow! And that I was forming an organization to raise private funds to match the city of Tampa's funds, and that's how I got done. Incredible! And I'm—I'm I'm still on the zoo board. I'm on the board now.
0: I noticed that it, it's one of those things where I've got to have time to read to go through the list of all the things that you're still involved in. So I saw that one on there. and that's a, it's amazing.
1: In Florida, we have our attendance 1,200,000. Hmm. Only Disney, Universal, and SeaWorld outdraws us. Wow. And Busch Gardens. We're, we're like fifth. That's incredible.
0: It's, and, it is uh, a great place. We
1: have $45 million worth of improvements going on right now. The state has been real good to us for the manatees mm. because we have an incredible hospital there. For, not only for manatees, all the animals. Mm.
0: Let's take a minute to talk about my friends at Resource Environmental Solutions. Our state presents unique challenges with its diverse ecosystems, landscapes, and the many demands on its natural resources. That's why Res uses an innovative approach and creative solutions to help municipalities, agencies, and local water resource groups navigate the ever-changing landscape of environmental regulations in Florida and throughout the country. RES actively restores habitats, hydrological regimes, and ecosystem functions across Florida, from the Panhandle to the Heartland, to the Florida Keys and everywhere in between. They focus on restoring floodplains and wetlands and improving water quality, which benefits a wide array of species that call Florida home. With an unwavering commitment to Florida's unique ecological communities, RES upholds long-term stewardship practices guaranteeing sustainable outcomes that endure. Discover more about their work and commitment to Florida's communities and the environmental challenges they face by visiting www.res.us. All right, now back to the conversation. Let's move to a couple other things that you were doing at the time. First, there's the waste-to-energy plant the Advanced Wastewater Treatment Plant, the use of methane gas from a solid waste facility as fuel to power the facility. That's a lot right. of innovation in that short period of time. Were you always kind of looking to the next thing to improve
1: in those days? Yeah. It, it, you know, Like he's point. I think when I, when I got sworn in, the millage was at 9.85, mm-hmm. something like that. And uh, the city owned the library system, although the bulk of the growth was in the county. Hmm. And it owned the uh, transit system, had not yet placed the transit system in any kind of an authority. I won't go into that because there's another story. But I, created, I, got, I got the legislature to transfer the library system to the county, and I transferred the, the transit uh, system to the authority away from the city of Tampa. Hmm. It had a referendum, a millage referendum, to pay for the transit instead of using the millage for the city of Tampa. So that's how one way I reduce my my cost by shedding two things that never should be with the city any longer because the count growth was in the county, not sure. in the city. So those those are two big things. But, yeah, the, the, let's start with the, the tertiary treatment plant was almost completed when I took office, and they were getting ready to knock down the primary refuge uh, unit, which took the raw sewage coming in. I said, well, what, why don't we capture the methane gas there? hmm and then use it to power up the tertiary treatment plant. Well, it turns out that we were gonna get generally more power than we needed. So we wanted to sell the access to Tampa Electric Company, and there was no law on that. So we're negotiating with TECO, and and we were good friends, The late H.R. Carver, was a big supporter of mine, and of course we each would represent our own interests. We wanted to be paid at a higher rate, and they wanted to pay us at a wholesale rate, and we wanted a retail rate. Hmm. So we ended up going to the legislature. A bill got passed, not only for us, but for anyone who, who would then have power to transfer to, to a power company. Mm-hmm. And so it got resolved peacefully, but it, I mean there was a little give and take in the legislative session about. Neither one got exactly what we each wanted, but it was good enough for both of us. Therefore, we all of our excess energy started going to Tico. Then we had a problem right before I got elected like mayor that the Environmental Protection the Agency has shut down, the incinerator for the city of Tampa. So the city was having to haul their garbage way out north of the Interstate 4, just about where the Saffner Road is, all the mm-hmm. exit is.
0: And uh, the uh, notice Taylor, that's out there. It
1: was behind the Taylor landfill where the city had its dump. And, of course, that was expensive. Mm-hmm. More trucks, more employees, because of the long hauls. I had heard that Europe used refuse to energy. Mm-hmm. So I we went and took a tour of some of the facilities in Europe and came back and decided to convince the city council we need to go refuse to energy. And they agreed. That's how we ended up with the re- – and we didn't – we just retrofitted the old incinerator. So we didn't have to go to any new land-use permitting because that was already permitted. So you know, didn't have a battle with, with, with anybody because there was already an incinerator there. Interesting. So that was, that was really helpful. And then the, our basic water system in Tampa is the Hillsborough River, and the Hillsborough River plant was really – in fact, I had it put on the National Historic – list for water plants. Huh. It's a beautiful building. We used to get calls per the Alex. People want to get married there. Hmm. So we had that restored as well. So I, I, all the infrastructure at that time, uh, I was fortunate enough to be in a position to get it restored or done. New ones are restored, one or the other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was a great uh, almost eight years. I resigned and run for governor, so I did finish the eighth year.
0: Talk about that then. You, you told the story about how you talked yourself into running for mayor how did you talk yourself into running for governor?
1: Well, I went for re-election. I really didn't have an opponent. But when I announced for re-election, I said that I would not run, run again. And, in fact, I put term limits on the ballot, on the same ballot when I went for re-election. Hmm. Term limits for the mayor and term limits for the city council of uh, eight years. So I had said I will not run again. That two, two terms would be enough. Well, the same Clint Brown calls me and says, why did you do that? And It's because <laughs> I'm not running I'm not running a third term. You know, mm-hmm. I don't mean that. You shouldn't be talking about not running again because you need to run for governor. Now, Bob Graham is turned out. Mm-hmm. So I just kind of laughed on the phone, right, yeah, uh-huh. So I said, well, I, as I said, I did not say I wouldn't run again. I simply said I would not run for mayor again. So that's a big difference. Right. So we let it go. And over the years, because the way I had run government, I had gone to private sector of services a lot, mm-hmm. even to pick up solid waste. I had gotten a lot of attention from the Reagan White House. They periodically would send someone to talk to me. First was Senator Laxalt, who now has passed away. And then it was Orrin Hatch after that. Okay. They were both close friends, but then I would think of President Reagan. And they would come by and hold news conferences with me and talk about what a great mayor I was and all that. Of course, they were trying to get me to change parties. <laughs> so sometime in 83, after I got reelected, I get a call from the White House asking if I would go to the White House if President Reagan would like to visit with me. I had been with Jimmy Carter in the White House before, and I had been with President Reagan as well for different other reasons, not mm-hmm. not for politics. I knew it wasn't about the city because we had nothing pending as a city with Congress, you know, with a, a executive agency, so I knew it had to be politics. I decided that I would buy my own ticket, I would not use city funds to fly to Washington and back. And I asked a good friend of mine who was prominent with Reagan and prominent Republican in town, Al Austin. You may know of him.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: He, was, he was the for a number of years was the Florida Republican Party's finance chair. Right. So we flew up there, and uh, I think it was an early afternoon meeting, went into the Oval Office. President Reagan is there, and Vice President Bush is there as well. The president uh, gets up from behind the desk in the Oval Office and to greet me, and he said, Bobby, I'm Ronnie. <laughs> of course, people that grew up with, like my wife, they still call me Bobby. You know, once a Bobby, you're always a Bobby, <laughs> the people who grew up with. All right. And, of course, you get briefing books on everybody. You should get briefing books on everybody that I met. Mm-hmm. So They had nicknames. You knew what they were and all that. So I wasn't surprised that he knew that. And then we ch- chatted a little bit about one thing or another, a couple of jokes here and there, and Southampton, Tampa, and blah, blah, blah. And he says, you know, Then he finally got on and said, You know, you and I have a lot in common. And I said, Really? And he says, Yeah. I said, I was once the head of a union, and so were you. I once had a illegal strike with air handlers, and you had one with the sanitation workers, and we both broke the union. I was once a Democrat, and now I'm a Republican. So the only thing we're not alike is you haven't changed your party yet. <laughs> And a software asked if I would do it. And I said, well, that's a major decision. I did not get elected in a partisan way. Mm -hmm. The mayor of Tampa is elected in a nonpartisan ballot. And the parties were not involved in the election. So I had no help from the Democrats and I had no help from the Republicans. It's all like it is now Today they they do get involved, both parties. Right? Uh, But back then they didn't. You know, it's a major decision. Mm-hmm. I don't make major decisions without my wife, to be very honest with you, Mr. President, and which is true. So he said, well, think about it, and please let us know. So I went on home. Of course, I knew when I left the White House that there'd be a gaggle of media out there waiting for me. Mm-hmm. And sure enough, there were. Why are you here? What would you talk about? And on and on. And I'm obviously dodging all the questions. Who paid for your way? I paid my own way. And so... The White House press corps I let it go for maybe 15 minutes, 20 minutes, and then vote it up. And then uh, when I get to Washington National, there at the doorway to the air, to the airplane, there's a few more there waiting for me. <laughs> and when I got home, it was a bunch of the local media waiting for me. Back then, around June, my wife and I walked down to the Supervisor Elections and changed parties from Democrat to Republican. And, of course, I had notified the White House that morning that I would do that, and they must have notified the media because when I got there, the media was there, and, when I, and I told the Supervisor of Elections I was going. It must have been the press corps hmm. at the White House to notify the local press. So that's sort of how uh, how that happened. And then, of course, little by little, I began to engage in accepting speaking engagements to local Republican groups and things of that sort, and President Reagan appointed me to you know, governmental relations Mm-hmm. committee made up of mayors and governors and members of the House for uh, Congress. And I spoke at his uh, reelection convention in uh, Dallas representing the mayors of America. Mm-hmm. And that was how I got all, got all done.
0: And so how was that race when you did run for governor? Was it a, was it a close one?
1: Well, back then you had runoffs. Mm-hmm. So uh, in the first primary, I think I got like 48%, so I was very mm-hmm. short. So the runoff was very friendly. My opponent, Lou Fry, had run out of financial resources, so he didn't have a campaign
0: Out of curiosity is like the ability to have the financial backing was that a part of the switch in party to Republican was you got more more support no, there at that point
1: no i got i i didn't i I never had a pack hmm. all my all mine was hard money wow. The Republican Party at that time wasn't exactly wealthy, you know, it was a minority party in the legislature, as you well know. I think in the House, maybe it was two-thirds Democrat, mm-hmm. if I'm not mistaken. Right. There was no, in fact, I, I raised some money for the party. And the party did something, you know, generic, as you well know, but they can't do something specific, or at least they could back then. So all mine was cash of delivery to my account, campaign account, no, no, mm-hmm. uh, no pack. Never had a fact.
0: Let's talk about your time as governor. You followed Bob Graham in your sandwich between him and and Lawton Childs, and so as a Republican governor here in Tallahassee. Did you have a philosophy for governance when you got to Tallahassee?
1: One advantage, you know, I I was in the executive branch of government. Mm -hmm. So I was running a fairly good-sized city with a pretty good-sized budget. Sure. So I knew all the levers of executive government pretty well. What I didn't have was Engaging in partisan politics to do something. Hmm. Because it was a nonpartisan office I held. The council was nonpartisan, and we all got along great. There was no conflict between us. But that was quite different, obviously. Hmm. Although I had been involved with partisan politics when I was with the the teachers' union, Mm -hmm. it's quite different from that perspective than holding office. There now being a Republican bench to hire people. We we had good staff. A lot some a good number were not Republican because, mm-hmm. you know, I couldn't find Republicans that had the skills.
0: Sure.
1: So that was you know a little bit different. What helped tremendously was that there was, I believe, either four or five Democratic senators, including Dempsey Barron, that joined my campaign against the Democratic nominee, which is Steve Patrick. Peterson was another one. I think maybe W. D. Childers was one and Senator Long, I believe, who was from Dade County. When the elections were over and and the Senate and the House met to organize for the next two years, Ken Jenny was supposed to be the president of the Senate, and they ousted him Hmm. and replaced him with one acceptable to Republicans and Democrats. So there was a coalition between Democrats and Republicans that ran the Senate. So that was my go-to house the years that I was governor.
0: Talk about that time as governor, though. So, you're working, obviously, you're working with Democrat House, Democrat run Senate, but you still managed to do a whole bunch of consequential laws and programs as it relates to the environmental world and beyond that, largely talking about this. So, you've, you've got Preservation 2000, which is a land acquisition program, which is the, the predicate to Florida Forever, which exists now. You've got Kissimmee River Restoration, Service Water Improvement and Management Act, the SWIM Act, as people call it now the Growth Management Act, as well as laws that expanded protections for manatees and dolphins. And that's just to name a few, but I don't want to take too much of your time. So if we can drill down to a couple of them.
1: Yeah, there's two other ones that I thought were real important. The state did not have any solid waste law. Mm -hmm. So it was illegal dumping all over the state of Florida.
2: Oh, wow. And
1: there was no law against it. So I had that passed, that all local governments must have a solid waste system and there'll be no illegal dumping. Wow. The other is the, law, the state of Florida had no law on stormwater, so it wasn't a utility. And like water and sewer, you can bond if you had the revenue.
0: What about P-2000? Because the
1: stormwater is a whole bit different. So I had law passed making stormwater utilities so local governments could come up with some system of either annual or monthly fees that they could use to bond if that's what they wanted to do. So those never get talked about, but they were important for local government because it gave them control of the waste stream and solid waste
2: mm-hmm.
1: and also the ability to come up with a plan. In Tampa, to use property tax, mm-hmm. but in some cases you could use the amount of water that you displace into public conduits as a fee. That's more complicated. Property tax is the simplest way of doing it. Right. So those two were, you know, were done. The other thing about swim is originally when, when we advocated the bill, they only wanted to do it for freshwater. And I said, I want bays included. Hmm. And if I don't get the bays, I'll veto the bill. So as a result, Tampa Bay, Florida Bay, Banana Lagoon, all those areas got included as part of that. But before it was strictly for freshwater.
0: Wow. And that's super important. Like I'm most familiar with, you know, in in my time in the water management district, incredibly important bays up here. And so uh, I'm glad that those were added at the time.
1: Then, of course, our sound of environment, you know, the dolphin story is kind of interesting. Back in those days, every morning you had this big stack of press clips of what's Mm -hmm. going on. So you'd always scan through them to see if there was anything you had to respond to or whatever. I see that there were trappers down, I think around the Miami area trapping dolphins to be taken to an aquarium up in, I think it was New Jersey. I could be wrong, but I think it was New Jersey. Hmm. I said, do you mean that they can trap our dolphins and take them out of Florida? They said, yeah, there's nothing to stop them. So I called in general counsel, said I'll check to see if there's any law to be sure that that there isn't one. If there's not one, I want you to draft an executive order authorizing me to protect the dolphins. Hmm. They quickly out there working, and sure enough, there was no law. So they drafted an executive order. And I quickly signed in sent sent fish and wildlife to, to take away the dolphins from the trappers, hmm. which they did. The executive order is that within Florida waters, no one may trap a dolphin. So on the Atlantic side, it's three miles. On the Gulf side, is 10 miles. So then I think I advocated the legislature to get the executive ordering codified in statute. Mm-hmm. And I think they did. Now, you know, it's a long time ago. I can't... Uh, can't be that specific whether that happened sure. or not, but I'm pretty
0: sure they did it. You were talking about earlier the time when you were in at Swift Mud and you purchased a, a whole bunch of property in the Green Swamp, and that's an important recharge area. Was that part of your thinking around those Preservation 2000 days when that came about?
1: Yeah, that, that was one of the things that, that probably led me to Preservation 2000 but the other is that back then you had the Department of Natural Resources and the mm. Department of Environmental Protection and they, they all answered the governor cabinet right and they come before the governor cabinet and they all have small amounts of money to buy you know 100 acres there 50 acres there nothing really to make a difference quite frankly mm. and it was really a pain in the I don't say it was a pain in the butt but nevertheless there was arguments about whose money pot would be used and stuff like that and I seem you know, some telling this gotta be a better way of doing this so we formed, as I recall, I think a task force to come up with why we needed to have a major program, standalone program, uh, rather than the way we've been doing it historically. So they came up with their study. I got the information from the study and obviously went through it and met with the committee and, and then I said, well, if it's going to be a sustainable program, it can't be debated every year about how much money the program is going to get. Mm-hmm. And the only way you can avoid that is to bond it so that Wall Street is a watchdog. Hmm. So I uh, said so we are going to advocate three hundred million dollar bond a year paid for by the fees on permits for growth. Mm-hmm. So that money goes to pay the debt service each year. At first they by they I mean a good number of legislators resisted because it would be out of their hand every year to, have to appropriate right. the amount of money. But they like a the program. The idea of preservation two thousand says, well, this is the only way I'm going to advocate it. I'm not going to do this nickel or dime every year. So they finally agreed to it. And that's how we were able to do $3 billion hmm. without having an argument every year about how much to appropriate. And they said, well, you know, you're paying interest, and it's true. But every year you have new interest payers mm-hmm. that move into Florida. And the land is cheaper today than it will be tomorrow. So you have to factor in that while you're paying interest, you if you do pay as you go, by the time you get to the go, that value of that land will be a lot higher. Mm-hmm. And the people living at the moment there are paying for that immediate purchase while future people will be paying that interest rate too. And we call it President 2000 because it was a 10-year program leading to the year 2000. That's how it got its name.
0: Those were then documentary stamps? Is that the...
1: Yeah, growth the growth stamps, on docs, okay. which was a huge amount of money over here.
0: Right. It's become that way in, in terms of dealing with some of these environmental issues as well. They're, they're still using doc stamps.
1: Leaving the environment, because you meant to leave the environment a little bit, the, the other two that I'm, not, know, I'm proud of, and I use one of them, is I advocated the um, homeschooling hmm. that became law and prepaid tuition.
0: That's a huge one, both of those.
1: Yep. Yeah, my great twin granddaughters got contract one and two. They were only maybe a year and a half at that time.
0: That's incredible. All three of my daughters are in that program. It, it, it was a just a, a massive game changer for for families. Yeah, no, for sure. no, doubt. While we're doing it, tell me about the homeschooling legislation then.
1: Either Orlando or Seminole, Dan Webster was a state house member, mm-hmm. and and someone told me that I ought to go visit with him. I was still sitting mayor; I had not resigned. I was just campaigning part time, so I went over to see him. Talked about why I wanted to be governor, what I had done in Tampa, the usual thing you do. He said, well, I just want to know one thing, he tells me. He says, do you support homeschooling? And I said, yeah, I support homeschooling. He said, well, I'll support you then. And that that was it. <laughs> and, of course, Dan, if you look at the record, he was a great advocate, a great leader in the House to get it passed.
0: Certainly. He was my first boss in the Senate. That was back in 2001. So not Really?
1: Quite... Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's a great human being, Yeah. yeah. Uh, he was one of the very first ones to endorse me.
0: Wow. The connection between, perhaps the connection, I should say, between your time at the water management district at Swift Mud and mayor of Tampa, and then the swim program and that stormwater program, were were those things that you just noticed when you became governor? How much of your experience as mayor, as the vice chair of the water management district did you bring to those issues?
1: Yeah, they're all interrelated when you come right down to it. And the city, the city's a retail government. they mm-hmm. your living services directly to the consumer. Uh-huh. You have fire, police, water, sewer, solid waste, stormwater. It's all a business. Each one of those are enterprise funds uh-huh. of one kind or another. You know, it's a business. When you get to the state and federal level, they're kind of wholesalers, manufacturers. They transfer money. They don't want as many things as local governments run. They disperse money and then oversee how to disperse the money. they send to the university, to the community colleges, to the school district, to wherever. Probably the biggest direct expenditure may be transportation, the highway system. As a result of that, it's kind of all interrelated. Mm-hmm. Swift Mud, uh, member of the board, you decide how much money you can get. As a mayor, I was treating the water and selling it to those who wanted it. Mm-hmm. Swift Mud decides how much you can get. The state tells you and the feds tell you how clean your water must be before you can discharge it. It discharges into a body of water that people use for recreation. Mm-hmm. So everything is tied. I mean, they, they're all interlocked. So you just can't do one without uh, stormwater. Where, where does stormwater go? It goes to wetlands. It goes to rivers. It goes to streams. It goes into the bay. Right. So if that stormwater is not clean, then it's going to dirty the bay. It's going to dirty the river. It's going to dirty whatever. So it's all tied together. Mm-hmm. And I think as mayor, being a strong mayor system in Tampa, where you had to actually run this, you just didn't, as an elected official, you were real sensitive to all of that stuff. And you also have green areas. It's a very simple thing. Right. All the parks and playgrounds at the time I took off did not have anything to keep cars off the grounds. <laughs> so I put bollards all over so the cars couldn't get across. Simple wow. thing. Wow all of a sudden, the grass can grow, and the children playing there were safer, because the cars couldn't cut through, but they would do that in certain large playgrounds or parks. Yeah. So you learn all that because you're in the retail business, quite frankly. And, and you you know, and the city's small enough that I could see it myself. Nobody had to tell me this, there was a need.
2: Sure.
1: As mayor, I had the city divided in quadrants, and every Saturday I would get my basset hound, Get in the car and travel that quadrant to see what the projects were, that we had ongoing, how well they were doing, mm-hmm. how clean that area was, how overgrown the weeds might have been, whatever. Because mm-hmm. you can do hands on when you're in local government. You, it's very difficult to do that in the state and national government. Sure.
0: Well, m- let me ask you that. It may be a, a hard question. I, I mean, it may be an easy answer for you, but it seems like it might be a difficult question. When you look back on your time as governor and mayor, of course, you have to be proud of so many accomplishments, but is there anything there that you wish you had been able to do if you had a little more time but just couldn't?
1: No. Uh, you know, in government, everything's ongoing. I worked off what somebody else has done, and you leave it for somebody else to continue what, what I might have done. Mm-hmm. Clearly, there are there transportation issues, which, is, by the way, is one of the big things. My wife and I, our view is, Tomorrow, not yesterday? Uh, 89 or 90. We came up with a major transportation initiative, taking the various expressways and making it into a system rather than an individual expressway system.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Indexing the gasoline tax, the cost of living. Wow. Giving then local governments the right to increase a few more pennies in the gas tax by their own initiative. that was just available for them to do themselves. Mm-hmm. Some of the areas that had expressways and were keeping the money, were not too happy about that, so <laughs> but I did like I there was SWIM. It's either this way or I won't sign it.
0: Sure. And that's the so, Turnpike uh, Authority that you're talking about?
1: Right, exactly. Okay, okay. So, created a Turnpike Authority where we now have one system. As a result of that, the Sawgrass, the state took it over mm-hmm. because it was going bankrupt anyhow.
2: Hmm.
1: Then the Polk County Expressway got built as part of the deal. But that has been, I think, a, a real improvement in terms of having a turnpike system, so to speak, statewide to fund limited access highways and maintain them. Also, that the state revenue would be adjusted by virtue of inflation index to the gas price. That was one of the ones outside of the environment that I also put a lot of effort into.
0: Mm-hmm. Let me ask you a question, and I already know the answer to it, but I want to. How old are you, Governor Martinez?
1: Well, this is a big year for my wife and I. On December 19th, Mary Jane and I will have been married 70 years. Wow. On Christmas Day, December 25th of this year, I'll be 90. And my wife follows in three months. So we are going to have a real nice reception for all of our family and a lot, a lot of our friends.
0: That sounds uh, in great. December. I asked that question as a lead-in to something. I, I want to read something, and it's, it's not for you. You know this already. It's for folks listening at home. In regards things that you are currently up to right now, you're a senior policy advisor at Holland & Knight, enormous law firm. You're a trustee emeritus, University of Tampa, emeritus director, Hillsborough Education Foundation, director, as you said before, the Tampa's Lowry Park Zoo Zoological Society of Tampa trustee at Florida Tax Watch, director of Tampa Bay Economic Development Corporation, member Moffitt Cancer Center and Research Institute Board of Advisors, the director of Harmony Institute, and honorary director of Florida Council of Economic Education. There's no sign of you slowing down after all these years, is there?
1: It's great to have something you're going to do tomorrow
2: mm-hmm.
1: rather than talk about what you did yesterday.
0: I like it. I like it.
1: It keeps your mind active. I've gotten pretty good with technology because I've been working. So we've got a great IT department in Holland. night. I don't say I'm as good as an 18-year-old. <laughs> but for my age, I'm not bad. Not bad at with, all. Uh, dealing with today's technology. And I also think, how come you still like this? Well, my wife and I practice, we call it the he's, healthy eating, exercise, and socialize.
2: Hmm.
1: And we do a lot of that. We've always eaten good food, mm-hmm. you know, healthy food. We socialize we I mean, do we probably have over thirty couples we socialize with.
2: Hmm.
1: I walk I go still walk. I, I stop jogging. But I do walk, I go walking at four thirty in the morning, do two or two and a half miles. Wow. play tennis on Saturdays. Tomorrow I'll be playing doubles. Well, I'm shouldn't admit I shouldn't sit tomorrow because you you're on a podcast. <laughs> but every Saturday I play tennis. Sure. Doubles with, with pals of mine. So I stay real active and so does my wife. We try to ignore the uh, calendar as much as we can. Mm -hmm. I've been blessed with very good health. I've not had any issue of any kind. I've just been lucky, but I work at it too. I just don't take it for granted.
0: Sure. I'm going to ask questions that I ask everyone that comes on the show, and I hope you'll bear with me. Are you optimistic about the future of the environment and natural systems in Florida? And if so, or not? Why?
1: The continued purchasing long tracts of land is still it's going on from best I can read. Mm-hmm. And that needs to continue. I think we're going to have a water resource issue. You know, Tampa's, a, and as you well know, uh, we have not only swift mud, but Tampa Bay water. Mm-hmm. And we have desal plant. We have a reservoir. We have a river. We have wells. That's not true anywhere else in Florida. Either they're depending on freshwater flow or depending on digging wells. And it's not regional, so you still have the potential for warfare over who gets what water. Mm-hmm. So I think Pascal Pinellas and Hillsborough have done a great job. I think the legislature imposed it. I don't want you to believe that they did it on their right. own because they, <laughs> they had the first board was voluntary, and, and they couldn't do anything, quite frankly. Right. And I think it was Jack Vale if I'm not mistaken, to file the bill to create Temple Bay water, but it mm-hmm. could be wrong. And it worked. And so, in essence, we can handle our droughts a lot better than we could way back when it was on Swift Bud because mm-hmm. we have alternative sources of, of uh, water. Mm-hmm. But I think that remains a, a major, major issue. Uh, as we grow, more and more potable water is going to be needed. You're going to have more and more water, wastewater discharge taking place. You're going to have more storm water being put out into the system. So I think that is what may be detrimental to Florida's great environment.
0: And you were one of those folks that reacted and found solutions to the problems at hand, whether you were at the water management district or all the way to governor. Does it leave you optimistic that there are people out there that are always looking at finding those solutions?
1: Yeah, I think there is. That sometimes you need a, a crisis for something to get moved.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: At the time that I resigned from mayor to run for governor, I had a study, ongoing study, on how to use the tertiary treatment plant's wastewater that's being discharged into the bay. Mm-hmm which basically is drinkable, but nobody wants to do it. Although my, my Dale Twarkman, the late Dale Twarkman, demonstrated by actually doing it on a television campus. So we had hired a consulting firm, and their view was to back pump the water to the green swamp mm-hmm. and let it free flow through the swamp area, finding its way to the Hillsborough River mm-hmm. and coming back down again. All the studies that they've tried now have been on using it directly.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: and it wasn't from potty water. they have a nickname for it, I can't recall what it is, right. but they used to kill the idea, but mm-hmm. so what I was seeing was totally different, now I might have run into some environmental issues at some point saying what is it going to do to the natural environment to put all that fresh water, What well, is fresh water going on fresh water, that was the idea, was it going to be cheap, absolutely not, you would have needed a humongous pipe for a lot of miles mm-hmm. to get to the headwaters of the green swamp to begin letting it flow so the water's still going out to the bay, something like 90 million gallons a day. Mm-hmm. So a lot of things do stay unfinished as far as that goes. I think
0: there's still people looking at, whether it be direct potable, I think not the way the project that you described was necessarily, but there are folks that are looking at wetland treatment areas for wastewater and you know, before it gets injected into the ground for either recharge or eventual reuse. I always just think that the technology catches up to the need. And, and I think about Hillsborough County, Do you remember how many people lived in the entire county when, say, when you were born or or a kid?
1: Yeah, I looked it up once. (laughs) The county had just over 100,000. Right. And most of them were inside the city of Tampa at that time.
0: Right. Now how many we have, I think it's 1.4, 1.5 million people in the county?
1: Yeah, approaching 1.5, of which at least two-thirds probably are in the county.
0: Right. I say that just to to say like the water managers, the people that you left that legacy to carry on in those future years, seems like they take up that mantle to try to find the solutions because you have no other way. Everyone wants to live there. And well, Florida as a whole, and and certainly in the Tampa Bay area. And so they've got to find the solutions, right?
1: Yeah, this Bill Young had gotten a ton of money for Pinellas County to use their their, uh, wastewater for lawn irrigation. And in fact, one drought, I think they ran out of water, wastewater for that purpose, but... Mm. So the feds paid for that. Mm-hmm. I live in South Tampa, and Tampa got some kind of a grant, and the recycled water got to one block north of me. Mm-hmm. So I'm still in pure <laughs> city of Tampa water. I got gotcha. you. But the problem is not only the cost. Politically speaking, they run into citizens' rejection because it tears up the streets Certainly. for long periods of time to install new pipes.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So that becomes a political issue as well. So it's sure. not just the cost. It's a disruption that it brings for weeks and months at a time to lay new pipe and make new connections to each house.
0: Can I get you to offer some advice to young people who are just entering or even have an interest in entering the world of public service? You did it for so long. What do you tell them?
1: As you get older, you get fewer requests to go speak at schools. But when I spoke more often at schools and high schools, you talk about government and that there's room for People in government that are honest, that are willing to study. Their viewpoints could be different on a particular subject, but there's some things that viewpoints ought to be similar love of city, love of county, love of state, love of another nation. Mm-hmm. And which is unfortunately some of that has been disappeared, but at any rate, and that it's a way of serving the public. It's not part-time, even when you hold a position. It's not called full-time. Nothing is part-time in government. Mm-hmm. You're always getting called for one reason or another. You've got to learn to deal with people. You learn to deal with issues. You have to learn other with what you've got, but what else is out there that makes what you've got better? And so I'd go that route. I never have had a problem with audiences. I mean, mm-hmm. the kids were really receptive, and they would always ask questions. Now, what I also would say, if I looked out there, and often there was a lot of minority students out there, I would close it with an experience that I personally went through when I was running for governor, not for mayor. Some of the guys that I went to school with and played ball with and I would run into in Tampa, while well, I had already announced for governor, they would say, God, what's going to make you think you're going to run for governor and win? Will your name be Martinez and you're a Catholic and you represented a union and <laughs> and all the rest of it, all the stereotype that you would think about? Mm-hmm they were thinking about that. So of course I never paid attention to any of that. Hmm. But I did do bring it up because it does come up
2: mm-hmm.
1: that you can't do this because you're either male or female, well, you can't do this because you're white or you're black, you can't do this always it comes up a lot.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So I use myself an example that I've been told when I was running for governor by people I had grown up with, some I even played ball with, sort of wasting my time running for <laughs> an office with the name Martinez instead of Martin, Mm -hmm. and not Episcopalian instead of a Catholic, and on and on. Mm -hmm. And, of course, I didn't pay attention to any of that. And what happened? I got elected governor. Right. So don't let anybody tell you that you can't do something because something that they say will be a hindrance, like your race, your Mm -hmm. ethnicity, uh, your religion, whatever. Mm -hmm. I'm proof of it that none of that mattered. And so that's sort of our the speech if I see there's a lot of minority students in the audience.
0: I think it's excellent advice, and I think that's also the great place to stop. It's been a real treat for me today. Governor Bob Martinez, thank you so much for being on the show. Really appreciate it.
1: Okay, Brett, take care, and uh, have a great weekend.
0: Excellent. Hope we get to talk to you soon. Well, that's it for this episode. Thanks for listening to Water for Fighting. This podcast has been brought to you by Rez and Sea and Shoreline. Don't forget to check the episode notes to visit their websites and learn more about how they can help you. If you're enjoying the show, please be sure to subscribe on whatever platform you use. And don't forget to leave a five-star rating and review. You can follow the show on Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, probably even Twitter at FL WaterPod. And you can reach me directly at flwaterpod at gmail.com with your comments and suggestions for who and or what you'd like to know more about. production of this podcast is by Lonely Fox Studios. Thanks to Carl Sworn for making the best of what he had to work with and to Dave Barfield for the amazing graphics and technical assistance. A very special thank you goes out to Bo spring from the Bo spring band for giving permission to use his music for the podcast. The song is called doing work for free and you should check out the band live or wherever great music is sold. Join me next time for another amazing conversation with someone who has helped shape water and environmental policy in the sunshine state until then keep your whiskey close and your water closer.